So this morning we're up to the second article of the, that looks at the Trinity. And uh, in my years of being in churches, which is over 40 years, I've never actually heard anybody preach on the Trinity. So uh, this will be a first time for me and a first time hopefully for you as well. And I want to start this morning with a great prayer. It's by a man called St. Patrick. It's called the Breastplate Prayer. And it goes back to the 8th century. So we're going to pray some words that uh, were said 1,200 years ago. So let's bow our heads in prayer. I raise today with the power of God to pilot me, God's strength to sustain me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look upon me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to protect me, God's way before me, God's shield to defend me, God's host to deliver me from snares of devils, from evil temptations, from nature's failings, for all who wish to harm me far and near, alone and in a crowd. Amen. So the second article of Westminster Confession of Faith deals with the nature of God. It has three sections to it. The first looks at the character of God and describes God in 24 different uh, characteristics about uh, his nature. The second talks about uh, God is the author of all life, uh, glory and goodness, blessedness, and his relationship to creation. But my sermon today wants to focus on the third aspect of the second article, which is to do with the Trinity. Uh, so the Westminster Confession of Faith says, In the unity of the Godhead there are three persons of one substance, power and eternity. God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, which is old-fashioned word to say God was not created by anybody. He was the author of all things. That he's neither begotten nor proceeding from. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. So why do Christians believe in the Trinity? It's because it's a doctrine that is revealed to us in Scripture. The word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible. It's just a shorthand word to say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there is one God. So why do Christians believe in the Trinity? Because Scripture reveals this truth. It's not by philosophy or man's reasoning that we come to this idea. But it comes through because Scripture teaches very powerfully these three things, that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and that they are one in unity and purpose. Now, the Trinity in the 3rd and 4th century was very heavily attacked. There's a man called Arian, and uh, his belief system is basically uh, what Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. Then in between the 18th and 20th century, we've had numerous people try and attack, especially Jesus being God's Son. So there's some people who say, I'm happy to say Jesus is a teacher. I'm happy for him to be a counsellor. I'm happy for him to be a radical. And uh, people regularly will pick Jesus to support their causes and change him to suit their needs. But the Bible very clearly teaches us that Jesus was God the Son. God from heaven who came to earth and lived amongst us. So let's look at the first part of what it says about the Trinity. The first says that God is, uh, uh, God is Father. So there's one aspect of God. So in 1 Peter 1, God the Father decided to choose you as his people. So most people are happy with God being there. And they're happy with him being Father. They don't mind that. Although there are some churches who don't like the term Father. They think it's sexist because God could be Mother or Father. And I'm aware that there are some places where people will now pray to God the Mother or sing to God the Mother because they think there should be more equality there. Now another verse which is quite crucial is 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6. 
because it talks about God the Father, but it also talks about God the Son as being separate and different, but both equal to each other. As for us, there is one God, the Father from whom all things and from whom we exist. And then it says, and one Lord. Now it's interesting the term Lord and God, because in the Old Testament, the term Lord is nearly exclusively used of God the Father. We get to the New Testament, it says God the Father, and suddenly Lord becomes the term we use for Jesus. And one Lord Jesus through whom all things and through whom we exist. So it describes here that God is the Father is creator, but it also describes God the Son Jesus as also co-creator. And if you go right back to Genesis chapter 1, it talks about the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the darkness. And so there's a sense that God the Father, creator, God the Son, creator, God the Holy Spirit is creator. Now, the Son of God is an adoption that has been attacked so aggressively for a long time. Now, we, uh, as we go through the, the, the Bible, we find that Jesus is doing things that shows that he's like God the Father. So he forgives sin, where people say only God can forgive, but he forgave. Jesus heals like God heals. He raises the dead back to life again. Now, we have many Old Testament passages that were meant to be about God the Father, that in the New Testament are used about God the Son. We find in the New Testament people would pray, not just to God the Father, but prayed to Jesus. People would call upon the name of Jesus as they call upon the name of God. And the Bible writers would call him literally God. Jesus is given God-like character and God-like attributes. And we even find that God himself in heaven calls Jesus his son. So let's just look at some of these verses and unpack them. So I want to look at some of the things from the Old Testament. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Does anybody know what Emmanuel means? God is with us. So Emmanuel, God is with us. Then in Isaiah 44, verse 6, as a description of God, it says, I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God. So first and last is a very powerful term to describe God the Father. Now we go to the New Testament, book of Revelation. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am the first and I am the last and I am the living one. So he takes the title of God the Father and applies it to himself. Then in Revelation 2 verse 8, the angel there writes, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Who died? Jesus. Who came to life? Jesus. Who's called first and last? God the Father and Jesus. So it's an example where Jesus takes the claim of being equal to his Father in heaven. Now, if you go to Mark's Gospel, at the very beginning, there's some delightful words there. And it's words that we've heard a thousand times. It says, The good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as Isaiah has written, I am sending my messenger, which we find out is John the Baptist, and he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. And everyone who's uh, listened to Godspell, uh, you know that's one of the most famous songs uh, in the uh, Godspell production, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Who is the Lord in the book of Isaiah? God the Father. Who is the Lord here in Mark's Gospel? Jesus. And there's dozens of verses that refer to God the Father in the Old Testament, 
that is used in the New Testament to record Jesus. So this is one of the most powerful ones that we have. Now in our Bible reading today, it was from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, beside God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. So the question then is, who is this Word? And we go down to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh, the Word became a human being, and dwelt among us. And you and I have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father. So what does it say about the Word there in verse 1? The Word was God. It goes on in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So what's it saying? No one has seen God. That's understandable. God's invisible. The only God who's at the Father's side. So here's God at his side. It says the only God on the Father's side. In other words, Jesus has made him known. So John very powerfully says that Jesus is God the Son. He's equal to his Father. Now as we go through the, the Bible, you find that Jewish people were very fanatical about how they worshipped God. Matter of fact, whenever the Romans uh, went to Jerusalem, they were not allowed to have any of their standards or their displays or their statues because the Jewish people would actually do rebellion. So what happens is that um, uh, they were very rebellious and that was one of the causes of their rebellion in the Jewish wars. But what do we find in the Bible about worship? In Matthew chapter 2... It says, the Magi asked, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? We have seen his star and we have come to worship him. And you say, well, they're foreigners. They don't understand Jewish worship. That's, you know, they're obviously misguided. Then we turn to the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. Some women hurried away from the tomb. Why? Because Jesus was not there. He's, the, the tomb is empty and they're thinking, what are we going to do? Maybe his body's been stolen. Their mind's a spin with ideas, and suddenly Jesus meets them. Greetings, he says to them, and they fall and grab his feet and they worshipped him. If you were Jewish, you know only God deserves worship. So who else thought that Jesus was God? We go to the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus was baptised, behold, the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven. So who's going to be the voice from heaven? God the Father. Says, this is my beloved Son. And it's not the only time we find God's voice describing Jesus as his Son. Now for the disciples, they took a long time to grasp the depth of Jesus' teachings. There's things that he would teach them that, 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 was, that was just far deeper than them understanding. So we get to the Thursday night. Before Jesus dies on the Good Friday, Jesus meets with his disciples and Jesus is discussing different questions with him. And Jesus says to his disciples, Do you not know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus replied, Philip, I've been with you a long, long time. Don't you know who I am? 
If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. How can you ask me to show you the Father? I am God in the flesh is what Jesus is saying to them. Now after Jesus resurrected, the disciples, except for Thomas, all saw Jesus come to life again. And uh, Thomas comes back and they say, we've seen Jesus and he's alive. And Thomas goes to great detail say, I will not believe it till I can touch the wound in his hand, till I can touch the wound in his side, till I can touch the wound. Like it just goes on and on in terms of exaggerating how much evidence he really wants. Because uh, Thomas is a person who needs to see it to believe it. A week later, Jesus comes in the room. And it's quite scary because the word he says to Thomas isn't just hello. He says, Thomas, feel the wounds in my hand. In other words, Jesus is saying to Thomas, I know what you've been saying all week. I know your arguments. I know your troubles. Come and look at the evidence for yourself. And it says that Thomas falls on his knees and says, You are my Lord and you are my God. What a transformation of thinking. Thomas doesn't say, oh, right, you're alive, that's great. doesn't say, oh, well, you must be the Messiah. He says, you are my God. Now, Thomas is Jewish. Jewish people do not worship anything except for God the Father. To fall on his knees and say, you are my Lord and you are my God, is incredibly powerful. Now, if you're a good Jewish person, you would pray to God the Father all the time. And he would be the basis of all your prayers. Now, in the book of Acts, we find Stephen had been a very godly, devout uh, believer in Christ and uh, had preached a very passionate sermon about why Jesus died upon the cross because he wanted the people who heard him to come to a living faith. And many of them there uh, may have come to faith, but there's a, a group of them who were so angry with what he did that they stoned him to death. And there in Acts 7, it says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus... Receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When Jesus was crucified, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what I'm doing. Stephen says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He takes on a godly prayer. But who does he pray to? Jesus. If I died, I'd want nobody to say, Oh, dear Rob, how are you going in heaven? I don't want you to pray to me because I'm a human. But Stephen prays to Jesus, not because of his humanity, but because he's the son of God. Now, the book of Romans is interesting. It does a word play. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, in the Old Testament, the term Lord was always used of God the Father. Here in the New Testament, it's used of God the Son. So all who call upon Jesus' name will be saved. So let's turn to the Apostle Paul and some of the comments that he makes. Now Paul himself had been brought up as a very uh, strong Pharisee. He would have been very learned in the Old Testament. And uh, he was a bitter enemy of Christians until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So when he wrote to the church in Colossae, he says this, and talking about Jesus, for by him all things, or by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and in earth, whether visible or invisible, 
whether they are thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and all things were created for Jesus. Very powerful description of Jesus' divinity. Then verse 17, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the man Jesus, who is God's Son. Further into Colossians in chapter 2 verse 9, he says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. If that was the only verse we had in the whole Bible, we would need no other verses than that one alone, because that says God is Jesus in the flesh. Now in the book of Philippians says, Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And then goes on to describe how he came as a servant. Imagine, you're God, creator of everything. But you choose to come to earth as a man, but not just a man, but come as a servant to others. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom everything exists. So everyone says, who's a Jewish person, say, Amen, there's only one God. Then he adds, and one Lord, the same term, Lord God, that, that is interchanged. Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist. All things are created. So Paul is writing here very powerful words. Now at times, the writers in the New Testament will call Jesus God. And it's interesting, I've loved reading the commentary debate about these verses because they say, these words are way too powerful. Maybe we should put a comma. Maybe he's talking about God the Father and God the Son as separate things. But uh, here are some words. We wait for the glorious return of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So it says, Jesus is our great God and is our great Saviour. Then in 2 Peter verse 1, To those who obtained a faith in equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So Jesus has been called God is the whole way through scriptures. There's hardly a verse that doesn't undergird the idea that Jesus is God. Now, did the people in time of Jesus think that he was teaching that he was God? Or did they think he was just being a prophet or a good man? So in John chapter 5, it says, Now the leaders wanted to kill Jesus for two reasons. Reason one, he had broken the law of Sabbath. Now, they were obsessed with the Sabbath law. And number two, he had said that God was his father, making him equal with God. So if you were Jewish and someone said, Oh, I'm God the Son, they didn't say, Oh, yes, you're lesser than God. To use the term God the Son made you equal with God the Father. All the Jews who heard that believed that, and that's why they tried to kill him. There's times they'd try and throw him off a cliff, but he'd be able to walk away. And eventually when he was crucified, it's because he said that he was God the Son. Now the third aspect, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit God. Now if we turn to the book of Acts chapter 5, we see, find there that <clears throat> there's a, uh, an issue about some people uh, who gave money to the church, but they lied about how much they'd given. Peter says, Why has Satan made you keep back some of the money for the sale of the property? You have lied 
to the Holy Spirit. So keep that in your mind because it's going to come up again later. The property was yours before you sold it. And even after you sold it, all the money was yours. What made you do such a thing? You did not lie to people. You lied to God. So the beginning, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. The Holy Spirit has been treated here in this passage as being God. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, God's Spirit has shown you everything. His Spirit finds out everything, even what is deep in the mind of God. You're the only one who knows what is in your own mind, and God's Spirit is the only one who knows what is in God's mind. So there's a sense that the Spirit of God knows God the Father, knows Jesus. His aim is to reveal truths about God to us, because he grasps and understands God, because he is God the Holy Spirit. Now we turn to John chapter 14, and one of the promises Jesus makes to his disciples on that Thursday night when he dies, is that he will send another counsellor. He says there, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now Jesus calls the Holy Spirit counsellor or comforter, and that he will come as a counsellor like me. The Holy Spirit is a counsellor like Jesus because Jesus, the person, counsels. The Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, counsels us. It is not a force. It is not energy. But it is a person, the same as the Father and the Son. Now we find that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in thought, in purpose, and in desire. What one thinks, the other thinks. They're on the same wavelength. They're not in debate with each other. They're not in conflict or diversity. And so what's the early church told to do? Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the key word here? Name. It doesn't say baptize them in the names, plural but says, baptize them in the name, singular, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are seen as one unit. They are a corporate identity with each other in purpose and thought. So what is their different roles? The Father God is eternally Father, and he's a Father to Jesus the Son. Now Jesus is the image of God in the flesh. He's God come in human form, and his aim is to glorify God the Father. He's the only eternally begotten Son. He is 100% flesh, 100% human. It means his flesh part represents us as people. His 100% God means he represents God. He is the perfect person to die on our behalf upon the cross. What does it say about the Spirit? It says the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son to glorify Jesus. He brings about the completion of creation. He brings about the completion of redemption. So there is unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John 10, I am one with the Father. Then in John 15, I'll send you the Spirit who comes from the Father and shows what is true. The Spirit will help you and will tell you about me. This strong intertwining, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in purpose, deed, and direction. 
So let's uh, have some thoughts about the Holy, uh, the Trinity. Why is that important for us as Christians? When you and I talk about love, the highest level of love is what we call other person-centred love. If God was by himself and we say, oh, God's love, then his love is self-centred because all he can do is love himself. Before creation, there's nothing else to love but himself. And such a person who is obsessed with that level of self-love is called a narcissist. But God, by his very nature, is other person-centred. It's when Father, Son, Holy Spirit from word go. God the Father loves the Son and the Spirit as Jesus loves the Father and the Spirit as the Spirit loves God the Father and Jesus. Love in the Godhead is other person-centred. That's the highest form of love that only the Christian God as Trinity can do. When we talk about other gods where people say, oh, we have one God, they are self-centred, not other person-centred. So the very essence of God the Father is to be giving to the Son and to the Spirit. The second aspect about God is that God is relationships. As there is a relationship between Father, Son and Holy Spirit, we as Christians are called to be part of God's relational team. So the first priority we as Christians are that we're in relationship with God. He then calls us to be in relationship with each other. I must say I love my church. I love being part of this church because you guys are family. Your brothers, sisters, parents and children in my eyes. There's a family connection because we are part of God's family. As a matter of fact, the early church got into trouble because they kept on going around calling everybody brother and sister and thought, my gosh, that's a massively big family. This must be 30 kids in one family because they're all sisters and brothers. Let's quickly look at some of the objections that people have given up. And the cult groups love trying to twist scriptures to support the idea of their wrong belief. So what's the first one? My father is greater than I, says Jesus. And people say, well, therefore, Jesus must be lesser than God. He must be a junior God. And I love that. Some groups say, well, God the Father is capital G God. Jesus is lowercase God. And you say, well, you know, you're twisting things that aren't there. So what does it mean by my father is greater? It means that God was in heaven in a position of a greater authority, superior nature. And Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus had come to earth as a servant. Jesus, in his role of servant, has voluntarily given up his rights and privileges that he had in heaven. Therefore, God the Father is greater than Jesus, who's a man on earth. When Jesus goes back to sit at his father's side, Jesus goes back to take on that greatness once more. The second thing they regularly do is they pick the word firstborn and say, oh, firstborn, Jesus means was the firstborn. Therefore, there's a time when he wasn't there. Therefore, Jesus must have been created by God. So that's in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is called the firstborn of every creature. However, in Jewish imagery, firstborn means having the rights and special privileges belonging to the oldest child. It refers to preeminence in rank rather than priority in time. And so sometimes in the Old Testament, especially in Genesis, you find it wasn't the eldest child who got firstborn privileges. And uh, we find uh, there's 12 sons born. Who gets the privileges? The youngest one, Joseph. Joseph was the firstborn in terms of priority, even though he was the lastborn in terms of birth rank. 
And if you look at John, John uh, Colossians 1.15, the firstborn of every creature, the next part of the verse answers the very thing they are fighting against. It says, shows that Jesus himself is creator of all things. Jesus was not created. Jesus has eternally been the son to his father. He was not made. He, like God the Father, is uncreated. Sometimes they take the term Jesus is the son of God. From this, some cults try to show that Jesus is somehow less than God. But in Jewish imagery, son meant uh, being part of the order or having the very nature of. For example, if you were called son of the prophets, meant that you belonged to the prophets. It didn't mean that your dad was a prophet. If you were son of the prophets, it meant you were a prophet. If you were called sons of the singers, it meant that you were a singer in the temple. Now, Jesus' Jewish contemporaries understood what, that he was claiming to be God, which is why they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. The last one is that Jesus is God's only begotten son. The Greek word means only begotten means unique, one of a kind. Jesus is the unique, one of a kind son of God because he is God by his very nature. Why is this so important for us? Because Jesus' death on the cross is what saves us. And only Jesus' death on the cross saves us. Not our goodness, not our works, not our background, our culture, our success, our wealth. We bring nothing to Christ except our sins. And we take nothing away from Christ except for forgiveness. That's why Jesus, Son of God, is so enmeshed in our very thinking as believers. It needs to be the heart and soul of who we are. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we do thank you that Jesus did come. That he didn't come just as a man, but as you, God. That he represents you and us so powerfully and perfectly that through his death we have obtained salvation. Not by our own doing, but only by what Jesus has done. 